This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by Taco Bell. Taco Bell in the news, Franklin, in the recycling area. You and I have talked a lot uh, recently about some of these uh, product stewardship bills working their way, Maine, Oregon uh, of note. But uh, Taco Bell is uh, recycling a big program to recycle all those little sauce packets, you know, the mild sauce, Diablo sauce, the hot sauce, whatever it is. And uh, you know what their tagline is? Recycling just got saucy. I like that. Recycling just got saucy. Franklin, what's your go-to at Taco Bell? Soft taco, followed by the chicken soft taco, followed by the chicken melt, which is similar to the beef Mexi melt, which they took off the menu about five years ago, and I've never recovered. Taco Bell is a go-to for me. It's a go-to for my family. There's a constant battle between me and my wife when we're going to get you know, tacos. She wants to there's a bunch of fancy places, you know. I'm always going for Taco Bell. Love some Bell. You know, I love that quesarita. That quesarita is, is pretty darn good. Have you ever had their uh, cheesy Fiesta potatoes, Franklin? I have not. It's like steak fries in the cheese with, like, sour cream on top. It's it's ridiculously good. And little little sleeper, their little Cinnabon delights, little 12-pack, little Cinnabon, uh, mini Cinnabons, fantastic. So Taco Bell, good for you for getting the recycling recycling is about to get saucy at taco bell and on that note let's do the show can i help you we need to talk about your flair i think i'm gonna have to go supersize i'm proud to be a bartender ain't nothing wrong with that we need a political revolution mr vice president i'm speaking come on man with all due respect that's a bunch of malarkey from the home office of Aligned Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, another group of coffee shops, this time in Cambridge, Massachusetts, has filed a petition with the National Labor Relations Board seeking union representation. It's the latest example of the uptick of grassroots-based union organizing campaigns currently underway in the industry. We'll discuss this effort, update you on the ongoing Starbucks effort, and what may be next for the industry. And there was extensive media coverage this week highlighting the steadily growing advantage that retailers have in the battle for employees. We'll take a look at that and what policy ramifications may potentially arise that will impact the labor shortage. And Gavin Newsom not only survived his recall election, one could argue he came out even stronger. We'll discuss the results and if the outcome in California has any national implications regarding next year's election cycle. We'll discuss those issues and wrap it up with a legislative scorecard. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my line public strategies partner, Franklin Coley. And Franklin, uh, some news coverage this week. Obviously, we've talked at, lo- at length over the last year or so about the labor competition for labor and the labor wars. And uh, there's a general sense, I think, that the the restaurant world is kind of losing ground, even more ground than it had been to the retail world. And Bloomberg's got a piece out this week headlining that Amazon and Walmart are winning the labor market wars. Franklin, what, do you, what is your take on all that? So the, the key points in the piece are that Walmart and Amazon and, and others kind of leading the retail sector which is generally thought as kind of the entry employment inspector and in, in, in competition with restaurant jobs and C store jobs and other hospitality industry jobs. But the point of this piece, this specific Bloomberg piece, is that Amazon and Walmart's others compensation, not only wages, but also benefits, you know, college tuition and healthcare and et cetera, et cetera, that and, and this is in the heels of an announcement this week by Amazon that in their um distribution centers that they're going to be upping pay to, I think it's 17 or 18 an hour, 18 an hour. And so the point this article makes is Amazon and Walmart aren't 
besting the rest of the entry level employment sector, they are cutting into the manufacturing sector, traditionally those quote unquote good jobs versus those quote unquote low wage jobs. So there's kind of entry level clerical positions in the manufacturing sector that Walmart and Amazon are now competitive with many of those types of jobs in terms of their total compensation offering wages and, and benefits put together. And um, manufacturers and those quote unquote, you know, good jobs or kind of career jobs are now looking over their shoulder as segments of the entry level employment sector come come after their workers. And so, you know, what that means for the restaurant industry is, of course, that, you know, we're getting even more kind of outpaced in, in some of these markets. But, you know, it, it's just it's a crazy tight labor market out there. It's so super competitive that it's starting to really kind of bleed into all segments of the uh, of the American economy. So, Franklin, you, you and I have had this. I think you and I have had this conversation offline. I know I've had it with some other folks. If if if, if all that's true, and I, of course, I wholeheartedly believe that that's true. If you're in the restaurant industry and you see that you know your your business model and the traditional model is not allowing the flexibility to maintain that that wage and benefit pace, especially on the benefit side of the ledger, why why wouldn't you when you think about saying, hey, I can't compete with this benefits package. I can't compete with that benefits package. The only way I can really close the gap is through governmental action, i.e., wouldn't wouldn't a national paid leave program put restaurants at less of a competitive disadvantage if they instead of competing in the marketplace on paid leave, which seems I like can't do, then if the government just leveled that marketplace and made everybody the same, it seems like it would close that gap on that and other fronts as well. Is that just crazy talk when I get pelted with raw eggs at a restaurant industry conference if I said something like that? Robots, Joe, the future is all about robots, my friends. Yeah, no, I think you're I think you're right on some things. I'm not sure it's at cut and dry on all things, but um, I think on, on some issues like vaccine mandates, for instance, we know that like a national standard across the board, probably a lot of restaurateurs would applaud that because they don't want that to become uh, a distinction within the labor. They don't need any more distinctions in the labor market. So like that, that would be one. And I'm sure there's others paid leaves one you mentioned that probably works, maybe works. But look, I went to Panera two days ago for lunch. No cashiers. Shut it down. We don't have workers. They forced you to the kiosk or to your app. So you walked in the store and there was no one working the cash registers. There was five people just working crazy like octopus and the, you know, their arms are moving so quick in the back managing orders. And that was it. You know, that was the entire store operation was right there between the grill and the, you know, salad making area and throwing the orders up on, on top. That was it for the labor footprint. There was one person walking in the dining room. So I think it's going to take all of the above at the end of the day, Joe, I think it's going to being smart with some blanket policies that make us competitive, being more competitive in the wage and benefit space. And then, probably slimming down our labor footprint wherever we can. Yeah. And I just, I, again, I, I think it's going to take a, a change in the way people look at these issues. We tend to look at them one at a time, myopically short term, but you know, that the, the golf is getting so wide uh, and, and, you know, in the marketplace for free market enthusiasts, the marketplace is, is making these decisions and, the industry, the restaurant industry is on the wrong and losing end of a lot of those decisions. And so if they're not going to be able to compete in the marketplace, it seems like 
they would use other resources to try to close that gap. And, you know, if the government had a national child care program, the government had a national paid leave program, yes, their tax bill would go up somewhat, probably not insignificantly, but it seems to me to be less of a headache not being able to open your doors because you can't get workers. And so I just think, it, you know, the, the, the times call for a, a new way to look at this conversation. And ironically, it's almost a way of Walmart looks at the conversation is that that leveling of the playing field and the government filling in those gaps in the marketplace. That's that's kind of how Walmart views the world anyway. So it's ironic they're now winning the the labor wars and forcing others to kind of think the way they have traditionally thought. So it's, just, it's kind of interesting, kind of full circle. That's good for generally speaking, just generally blanket speaking. That's good for institutional actors. If you're an existing brand with the infrastructure in place, that's probably going to help you versus, you know, a new entrant into the into the marketplace. So you would think it'd be tempting for brands to to look at those options. Yeah. So obviously a lot more to come. That's a subject we've talked at length about. We'll continue to talk at length about. But as the data pours in, it just kind of week by week, that gap gets bigger and bigger. And it's just uh, it's putting the traditional restaurant business model up against some some hard realities. And, um, so, you know, it's hard times already. So just, you know, interesting food for thought, no pun intended. Well, Franklin, we are on this podcast, not afraid to beat dead horses to death. Obviously, we just talked about labor space, which we've been talking about forever. But man, every week now, there is a new news thread, a new story in this labor organizing space. And here is another industry entity. Workers at Darwin's Limited, a group of Cambridge, Massachusetts cafes are forming a union. Franklin, you know, we had Phil Wilson on last week. This is the latest, man, this this coffee segment is getting turned on its ear faster than I think people out there in the industry realize what's happening. Yeah. So Darwin's, it's a small chain, four locations, 40 employees, and the majority have signed um, a union card. You know, it looks like it's headed, headed that direction. This is being organized by Unite Here. They are affiliating with Unite Here. The one thing that's notable between all these campaigns, and it tells you that you know, there's something going on out there besides like an international union spending tens of millions of dollars to organize a couple coffee shops. When you have this group affiliating with Unite here, Buffalo Group affiliating with SEIU, Collectivo affiliating with International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Burgerville and in, in that area affiliating with the International Workers of the World, the Wobblies. And somewhere in the mix, somebody was affiliating with UFCW, I swear, I just can't remember who. You know, you've, it could have been some of the Minneapolis folks, actually. Anyway, the point being doesn't really matter. The point being is this is not an international national union campaign to go pick off a couple independent coffee shops. This is bubbling from the ground up. And there's something going on here that the atmospherics, as Phil said, is one of the best labor organizing environments in his career, so in decades. And so I think we're going to have more and more. And I think this is the canary in the coal mine for these independent coffee shops or the canary in the coal mine that there's something larger going over here and it's going to continue to jump into the chains and we're just going to we're going to see more of it and we've we thought we were on the verge of this kind of tipping point before and you know it, it hasn't happened but it just feels a little different this go around it's interesting to me that these last couple of go-arounds collectivo starbucks now this you know this isn't you know, the old days of unrest, picketing a restaurant and banging pots and pans and walking around with signs and trying to, you know, tell customers not to come in. 
this has been kind of one of these quiet velvet revolution type things where it's just been very matter of fact, very quiet, very businesslike, very approach management. We want to be represented by a third party. You either do or you don't. We have an election. There doesn't seem to be a lot of the theatrics and, you know, awareness uh, building campaigns around a lot of these. I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to say they're stealth. They just, I guess they haven't needed it. There's so much else going on. And with the public opinion polls, we talked about a week or two ago with the Gallup polls and how popular, you know, two out of three Americans, you know, being sympathetic with the unions and union movement. Maybe they feel they don't need to go down that road anymore. They don't need to pot, bang pots and pans. They just need to be businesslike. And, and it seems like, am I, am, am I wrong on that? Am I just missing some stuff, Franklin? Yeah, no, I look, if you don't have the votes, you go outside and bang pots and pans to try to build sol solidarity and get people to join your cause. If you got the votes, you just file the paperwork. And we've had a lot of filing of paperwork. In most cases, the votes have been there. And we'll see if that's the case in these. But certainly, initially, it seems that that's the case, that the support is baked in. Um, these are foregone conclusions in, in most of these cases. So, you know, the, the other thing that it's worth mentioning is since last week, I, I guess we're going to start doing this every week now, we'll just give an update on the Starbucks campaign. So the organizers there filed petitions for two new locations, which would have brought it a total of five Starbucks lo locations in the metropolitan area there that they were trying to organize. They withdrew those last two petitions. The company came in and said, we want to expand the bargaining unit to the entire metro area, which is common tactic. And I suspect the union withdrew those two petitions because they thought it may bolster the company's position that the bargaining unit should be expanded. So Joe, the company is petitioning for this, but potentially we can have an election. I don't know how many Starbucks are in the Buffalo metro area, 20, maybe 15, something like that. This, this thing could be much bigger now in Buffalo. The company hopes it is. Um, they think they have a better chance of winning. But, you know, this is we're now in the, the kind of gamesmanship of uh, a campaign in Starbucks. And every week, every week or two, there's going to be a little development that comes out of there that gives an indication of what's going on. You don't expand the bargaining unit if you think you got the votes. I can tell you that. Um, so, you know, those three locations are probably a done deal. It's a battle over, you know, can they bring in other locations and, and try to, you know, what are those votes down? Far from over, obviously, Starbucks has a lot of cards to play, but, you know, that's the the development this week, I guess. So would you say that, you know, that going back to my, the, the, my previous comments about, you know, the bang in the pots, the pans and, you know, dining room disturbances, because we're not having those theatrics, they're not gaining a lot of news, you know, as much news coverage. And then, i.e., it's not showing up on the radar screens of a lot of people. I, I don't know if the average restaurant leader out there, big company X, medium sized company Y, I think the awareness level is lower than you think it might be after a, a few successful union or organizing drives within the industry. I'm surprised. It seems to me that there's a, a low level of awareness out there right now. I could be wrong. I think, well, I think the Starbucks hitting splashed across the pages of the New York Times is changing that. But I mean, we've been talking about on this podcast for six months, these growing wins, they have been notching wins in metro areas across the country. And we've been talking about it. It's been happening. But yeah, you're right. It hasn't gotten picked up outside of those metro markets. It's been covered just regionally. This is the first time if they win and this, this Starbucks campaign, that's going to get national coverage. That's going to be a national cable TV news. Chuck Schumer this week stood in solidarity, wrote union owned a Starbucks cup and, and, you know, posted it on social. 
So you better believe that they're going to be using the bully pulpits uh, if they win to get some national headlines. But here's the thing, just nobody gets their news from the newspaper anymore, except for you and I, Joe. These workers are not reading the newspaper. They're reading their social feeds. And within their respective markets, they've been seeing stuff in this building for some time. Now, the operators and the managers, their social feeds may not be littered with this stuff because they're, they don't, you know, they're not plugged in the same networks and watching the same things their workers are. But their workers have been getting a steady stream of social activism, political activism, and now workplace activism all commingled, you know, in the Madisons and the Milwaukee's and the Minneapolis's and the Buffalo's. They have been getting and eating this stuff and and getting dialed into this stuff for months and months and months. And so the information sources are different, right? And it's own in these markets, the workers, this is on their mind. They're seeing this stuff all the time. They're they're dialed into this, even if the operators aren't. Well, the last few years have uh, given us many instances of, I never thought I'd see this, or I never thought this would happen. I never thought we'd be in a position after four or five years of doing this podcast that we'd be giving a, looking forward to our weekly Starbucks unionization update. But I guess that's where we're going to be for the next couple of weeks, because as we've said over and over again, you punch a hole in that big brand and man, it could be a floodgate after that. So uh, we, we are just warning the audience, we're going to keep close tabs on this going forward. It's time for the legislative scorecard where we go around the country and update you on the latest legislative and regulatory developments. And as always, we start with health and safety. Franklin, what is going on out there in the world of vaccine mandates, mass mandates, and everything else in the world of health and safety? A lot. Uh, we have more and more vaccine mandates coming online, particularly at the local level, a lot of activity in California, a lot of activity in Hawaii, and we're going to see just more and more of it. So these are generally vaccine mandates for employees and for customers, you know, quote unquote, vaccine passports. And yet we've got a lot of lawsuits kind of emerging around these as well as the federal uh, requirement as well. So we're just going to have to see how this plays out over the coming weeks and months. And OSHA has not really put uh, too much pen to paper yet. We're kind of still waiting for, you know, the crossing of the T's and the dotting of the I's in terms of what those actual mandates will be. So, you know, we're, I think we're still in a kind of a, a, a wait and see as to what exactly is going to come out of, of OSHA. But I think we can assume based on the rhetoric of the Biden administration, they're going to try to be as expansive as possible and cover as many people as possible and leverage other agencies to pull as many people in that web as possible. So remains to be seen what happens there. Franklin, some, uh, some activity this week in the world of wages, starting with the Labor Department, adjusting the federal minimum wage for federal contractors it doesn't necessarily affect the industry directly, except for those restaurants that are doing business on federal property, museums, potentially airports, military bases and whatnot. What did the Labor Department do this week? 10.95 to 11.25, so a little under a buck, effective January 1, and the cash wage 7.90 an hour for eligible tipped workers. So if you're operating at Buffalo Wild Wings on a, on a federal property, a park or a, a military base, you're paying a server wage of seven ninety an hour. So that's pretty significant. And I think, frankly, we talked a few months ago. I think there's an effort and a conversation at the Labor Department to ultimately phase out the tip credit for these types of federal contractors. Am I right? Under the urging from President Biden, yes, um, which shows you how important this issue is all the way up to the big man himself. Franklin, Pima County, Arizona, uh, you know, Arizona has a kind of uh, 
interesting relationship with the minimum wage. They've had a state wage. Cities can go beyond. We've had this the state legislature try to uh, send an invoice to those cities for the increased costs of uh, raising their local minimum wage. So it's always been kind of a it, last year or two has been kind of a cluster in Arizona on the minimum wage. But yet Pima County potentially going forward with with an increase of their own. And the politics in Arizona are interesting because it's like one of the few kind of purplish states. It's, you know, but yeah, as you said, Pima County is looking, this is first reading on a $15 an hour measure. So, you know, no votes were taken. It'll be back up for consideration uh, later. And the current wage is 12 uh, 15 so it's not insignificant. I have to watch Pima County. And hardly a week goes by that we aren't reporting on some entity company in the entry-level employment space, uh, raising their wage and benefit package. And it seems like almost every week, Amazon's on that list doing something. What is Amazon announcing this week? Yeah, we talked about in the earlier segment that they're announcing that it's going to be an average wage of $18 an hour. I think earlier we may have said it was starting wage, but average wage of $18 an hour. Um, starting pay is going to stay at $15 an hour, but they're doing like a $3,000 incentive. So Amazon, Walmart, the retail community is really shaking up the labor market and making it super competitive. And uh, Sam's Club, not to be outdone, they are kind of separating themselves from their sister company of Walmart and, and announcing some significant wage increases of their own. From $11 an hour to $15 an hour as of September 25th, that will be the starting wage. That's a big jump. Uh, switching to paid leave, two issues at the federal level. We've seen Florida Senator Marco Rubio make a couple runs at uh, some type of kind of voluntary federal paid leave program. Uh, Mitt Romney has jumped into the fray the last year or two on this, and it seems like they are uh, teaming up again and taking another shot at paid leave. What are they doing? Yeah, they've kind of reintroduced. It's really kind of Rubio's plan, but, you know, it's essentially pulling down from Social Security. We've talked about it before. It's essentially creating a, a portable benefit around paid leave. As things currently stand, Republicans are really locked out of this debate because paid leave is probably going to be sorted through the budget reconciliation process. And we have that language. We're looking at that language now, I guess, is, is come out on the House side. But if Mitt Romney and Marco Rubio and some of the other kind of more moderate Republicans can can pull in a, a mansion or a cinema and, and get them bought into their plan. That's clearly what they're trying to do here, put this out there. Then that could could kind of change up the calculus and impact the the conversation around what the paid leave program looks like in the reconciliation package. So anyway, that's what's going on here. We usually don't report in bill introductions, but there's a lot of conversation uh, around paid leave has been, continues to be. And, uh, you know, it's going to be uh, a hot issue and in DC until it gets over the finish line here. Yeah, it seems to me it's a, a, a late late in the game hail hail mary. Like you know, the Dems are pretty locked in collectively on this twelve week. Uh, it seems to be one of the non negotiables in their soft infrastructure package. So I'd be surprised if it changed the conversation that much. But you know, who knows? It's sausage making, and we'll see what happens. My, my sense is Republicans are not going to die on the on the wall of. Uh, of paid leave. There's a lot of other, you know, considering the national consensus around, there's a lot of other issues they need to prioritize, but we'll see what happens. I know Rubio has been digging at this for a long time. We've talked about it many times in this pod. Frank, on switching to the local level, Allegheny County, Pennsylvania has been playing with this issue for a long time. We've been following on it and reporting on it. This is the uh, the county that has Pittsburgh, home of the Stillers. Uh, what's going on in Allegheny County? The county unanimously approved a uh, paid sick leave ordinance. Um, so if you're an employee with more than 25 workers, you have to provide 40 hours per year 
of paid leave. The county executive, I guess, had previously vetoed this, and now the Board of Health has made its own rules, and so the county has come back and passed this, and so uh, we'll see if this one, uh, this one holds up. But that's the current state of play in Allegheny County. And speaking of state of play, Franklin and labor policy, our good friends at Darden had a, a, a legal win this week with regard to our friends at One Fair Wage. What, what's, what's the story there? Yeah, I mean, One Fair Wage has been involved in a corporate campaign against Darden for forever, before One Fair Wage even existed, you know, which is kind of a spinoff of Rock, um, which targeting Darden forever. And they essentially tried this little cute novel argument, which was they tried to sue in California that Darden's use of the tipped wage amounted to sexual discrimination um, because it kind of unfairly was utilized for women. You know, the, the, the large amount of the, the Darden server workforce that was using the tipped wage were women. And so this was discriminatory by its very nature. The judge found that one fair wage didn't have standing in the case. And so it's kind of a Kind of a technical win, you know, any win is, is a win, you know, if you're darn, but it's kind of a technical win, didn't really get to the um, the meat of the matter. But, you know, I think maybe the case would have been dismissed on, on that as well. So it was a novel argument. Good try, one fair wage. I'm sure they'll be back next week with three other lawsuits, you know, to see what sticks. Uh, but they, they lost out on this one. Well, it seems kind of odd they just wouldn't have grabbed, you know, two employees and uh, filed the lawsuit in their, under their name. Uh, seems like pretty, you know, freshman year law school about uh, who has standing in a court case and who doesn't, but kind of odd for me. But uh, as you noted, Frank, on the top of the show, we talked about Starbucks and their request to the NLRB to expand that bargaining unit, that potential bargaining unit to the entire market, all 450 workers in the city. Uh, we won't belabor that point, but uh, still, you know, waiting for the the, the board to, to to rule on that request. Frank, on switching to alcohol, another industry win in California, another alcohol-related bill heading to Gavin Newsom's desk. Yep, headed to Gavin Newsom's desk, and it is still his desk, as we reported earlier. Restaurants will be able to sell cocktails to go through 2026. I mean, it's basically a done deal at this point. So customers will be limited to two drinks per meal and must pick up the cocktails in person and show a photo ID. Beer and wine will continue to be available for delivery. So that's a win for the industry. And uh, switching to delivery, Franklin, DoorDash, I mean, boy, I tell you, that's a cottage industry being a lawyer for the uh, delivery platforms. They're throwing lawsuits around left and right. What did DoorDash do this week? They're not going to take it anymore, Joe. They filed a lawsuit challenging the New York City law, and that law essentially requires that the delivery platforms share the customer information they collect, names, phone numbers, emails, addresses with the restaurant. So you go in the platform and you order from, you know, Jimmy's Bar and Grill. Now Jimmy's Bar and Grill has access under this New York City law to that uh, customer data. They're challenging it. They're saying it's unconstitutional. Uh, we'll see how this this works out. But to your point, uh, the delivery platforms have decided that they're going to start pushing back. And they're pushing back on this type of uh, law as well as many others around the country. Yeah, I like the way you framed that. We're not going to take it anymore. And it's it's interesting, just going back to the California story prior to that, you know, we've had some unprecedented gains in the industry over the last 18 months. 
both in the delivery space and the alcohol space. And we've seen some the second tier in the alcohol world pushing back both in big win in Nevada, I guess last week and earlier this, this fall in, in Massachusetts. So both those entities, I think are to your point, not going to take it anymore. And I suspect that 2022, uh, we're going to see a lot of pushback from both the platforms and the alcohol, you know, distribution industry on a lot of these gains we made during the, uh, during the 18 months of the pandemic. So everybody better buckle up and get ready to play defense on some of these hard won battles from the last uh, year or so. Uh, Franklin, switching to um, the, the latest jurisdiction getting into the packaging uh, space, but it's kind of only dipped a toe in. What did, what did Chicago do? And more importantly, what did they not do? It's so weird how these different jurisdictions pick different single-use items to ban or whatever, request only, or make compostable, recyclable, and then don't pick others. And you know, it's that the hodgepodge approach is is really challenging for operators. And quite frankly, I don't think really gets to the source of the issue here. We'd be much better coming forward with some consensus model legislation in this. That's that's a challenge to the listeners, Joe. But the city council here in this herky-jerky kind of approach, you know, they're they're mandating that by January 2022, delivery and carry-out orders um, that include utensils, napkins, and other single-use items have to be by request only. So you can't just stuff that stuff in. You know, it's gotta it's gotta be by request. Just you know, we've seen this particularly with straws around the country over the the past few years. There are exemptions for drive-throughs and straws, beverage lids, and packaging items are not covered by the ordinance. So it's you know it's kind of all over the place at the end of the day. It's not a holistic approach to this issue to say the least. It seems like the the biggest targets traditionally by states and localities are the, the styrofoam packaging and the straws in this particular ordinance expressly omits them. So I assume it was, you know, the work of the restaurant community, restaurant association trying to kind of barter and negotiate out, you know, different pieces. But I mean, no, I'm not trying to pick a fight here, but my God, if you're city of Chicago, why even go? It seems like it's impossible to enforce something that's so kind of herky jerky and non encompassing, but seems like a very weird outcome. And, but again, the latest jurisdiction and a big jurisdiction to get into this, get into this space. And speaking of 2022, we're going to see a lot of that next year. So pretty quick scorecard, uh, still pretty slow time of the year, post Labor Day, all the legislatures with, with rare exception are out, but uh, you know, issues keep popping up and as they do, we'll keep reporting on them. Well, Franklin, you might recall, you might recall that this week in California, there was a recall election. And uh, to quote the famous uh, William Shakespeare, it seems much ado about nothing. Gavin Newsom won quite easily, I think more easily than anyone probably anticipated. It's one of those things that seems to me that people will say, well, don't read too much into this if he wins, but boy, they would have been reading a lot into it if he had lost. What is your take on what is meaningful about the Gavin Newsom result and what is not meaningful? Uh, what is meaningful is that Donald Trump can't win California. You know, it's, it basically, that's the race got nationalized and it was basically a, a mini Trump versus the Democrat incumbent governor. And that's what the race became. And guess what? <laughs> the Democrat incumbent governor is going to win in that circumstance every single time. So Republicans... So you don't think that was a mandate? You don't think that was a, a referendum on masks and vaccines? I'm saying no. Well, I mean, that's okay. That's baked into kind of the Trump thing. 
is, you know, there's kind of, but what it was not is a referendum on Gavin Newsom. And if it had been a referendum on Gavin Newsom, it probably would have been tighter. I don't know if he would have lost, you know, that's, that was the whole thing going into it is it was a referendum on Gavin Newsom and French laundry and, you know, how he's conducted himself. And there was none of that. It was, you know, Larry Elder and Donald Trump. And then basically you could, their comments were indistinguishable from one another. And then Gavin Newsom, uh, the VP and the president on the other side. And guess what? California's blue. <laughs> so, you know, that's, you make it a national referendum, Republican versus Democrat, and the Democrat's going to win it. Well, you know, and that's, and you can say this from both sides. You can argue the best thing Republicans have going for them is they're Democrats on the other side of the, the ticket. And the best thing Democrats have going for them is they're Republicans on the other side of the ticket. And, you know, while, while the Democrats are, you know, not in a great political position. Obviously, their party leader, the president, is in a terrible political position. It's all relative to who you put across the lineup from them, you know. And if the movement continues to put forward the Larry Elders of the world, it won't just be California that will laugh them out of contention. So again, it's it's all relative to who's who your opponent is. And I, I think Gavin Newsom was probably very vulnerable if. Uh, the Republicans could have been pragmatic instead of ideological. Uh, they may have may have been able to make some hay there. So, you know, it is what it is. Gavin survives. You know, you, you're led by the nose by the media and, and you begin to, to, to read the press clippings and believe it. But I never thought he would t- be toppled. But I did think there was a plausible scenario where he came out of this a very weakened governor and a lot of hatchets out in the legislature and people that want his job. And if anything, he came out of this smelling like a rose and in a very enhanced uh, political position and with probably a lot of people putting those knives right back in the sheath. You know, it could have been a Como, could have been a Como situation where everybody was drawing knives for him and he's anything but that. He's much stronger than he was before the recall started. That's for certain. I mean, the other thing is to your point on the Republican side of things, I mean, the, the California Republican party is a freaking dumpster fire. So it was what it was, you know, like the, the crazy voice multiple decades is a right wing kind of talk show host was the one that that pulled the greatest support on that side of the aisle. That dynamic is not necessarily going to be in play in the midterms in competitive seats that are kind of 50-50 seats. So to the other part of your question, like looking forward to the midterms and beyond, you know, can we read anything into California? And I'm not sure we can read a, a lot other than the fact that Trump is not going to go away, right? Like that's the one thing California tells us is he's still probably going to be somewhat of a force, and the question will be, can the Republican candidates, you know, resist resist that pull to run in moderate kind of purple districts and be successful? And, you know, I think we knew that before the recall as well. well yeah, Trump, Trump's not going. I mean, there, there's there's two major entities in the United States obsessed with Donald Trump, and that's Donald Trump Incorporated and the American media is obsessed with Donald Trump, whether he's before he got the office, in office and out of office. So he, those two forces together, the media will continue to make him a dominant player in, in, in the policy. But to California Republicans who spent six months and wasted tens of millions of dollars strengthening a Democratic governor, it's got to be looked at, at any uh, under any circumstances a fiasco. The fact that Gavin Newsom could come out 20 points stronger than he went into it says, says a lot about what, what's happening over there. Anyway, interesting to watch. Uh, we do have election coming up in Virginia here in a, a couple of probably about six, seven weeks. And that I think will be uh, governor of Virginia race 
I think will be much more telling about where the national mood is uh, for, for Democrats, especially the former governor, uh, Terry McAuliffe, running again against a Republican businessman. You know, in Virginia, we've talked about at length becoming much bluer. The legislature flipped here in the last uh, two or three years. Two blue senators, blue governor, you know, two or three blue governors in a row. And uh, what was a very quintessential purple state. And we're going to see how purple or blue Virginia is. And I think if, you know, I, I think all indications are that that uh, the former governor will should win. Uh, but if it's close, that tells you that Democrats nationally are probably in pretty big pretty big trouble. So, all right, well, that wraps up another week, another pod. Until we talk to you next week, stay safe, stay informed, and we'll see you then.